Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come now to the end of the Gospel according to Luke that speaks to uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. And without the resurrection from the dead, there is no Gospel, there is no victory over death, there is no a lot of things. And so always when... Jesus' death and burial is spoken of in the Gospels. It is always included in that is the message of the resurrection. All three are uh, vital to uh, a full Gospel message to, to meet the needs of mankind. And we're told on the very first day of the week, that is on a Sunday, the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection, very early in the morning, uh, as, uh, just as the sun is coming up, we know from the other Gospels, they and uh, certain other women with them, uh, a group of women, they'll be named for us a little bit later in the passage, uh, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. So remember the women had seen where Joseph of Arimathea had put Jesus in his tomb uh, uh, prior to uh, the Sabbath and prior to the Feast of uh, Passover, and now they come back to that same tomb. It is interesting to recognize that as often as the Lord told the disciples, including the women, that He would go to Jerusalem, He would be very badly treated, He would be beaten, He would ultimately be crucified and rise again on the third day, they just never ever took that to heart until um, after his resurrection. And so they don't come. If they had listened to Jesus, they would have come and said, uh, they would have never brought any spices. They're coming to anoint a dead body. They, they don't expect to run into a resurrected Jesus. One of the things that you'll hear sometimes atheists or those are going to attack the Bible and all, they'll talk about how this Jesus' resurrection was just a plot. It was a myth that was foisted among ma mankind by uh, the disciples, and I think some of you never read the Bible, um, none of them expected his resurrection on that day, let alone uh, the ability to come up with some concoction to uh, fabricate it uh, at all. And so when they came to the tomb, they found the stone uh, rolled away from the tomb. That was a concern that they had about how they were going to remove that stone uh, to uh, further anoint his body for burial. And then they went into the tomb and they did not find uh, the body of Jesus. Again, that's what they were intending uh, to find on that day. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. They're trying to get their heads around it. That behold, two men stood by them with shining garments. And so we know from the other uh, gospel accounts that these are angelic beings. And the, the shining garments, uh, Vincent and his... Uh, deal uh, his uh, dealing with the Greek. It, 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 it speaks of a lightning, the brightness, the pure uh, brightness of their being that uh, that radiated from them. And as you might imagine, uh, if you ever say, "God, I, if you're real, uh, send me an angel. Uh, make sure you have good health coverage," and because uh, it may be a little more than you think it's going to be. They were. Uh, frightened. They were afraid when they saw these uh, angelic beings. They bowed their faces to the earth, and then they said to them, why, uh, said to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? One of the great resurrection uh, statements concerning Jesus, why do you seek the living uh, 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 among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And that first section of verse 6 is, carved into the, uh, the little door that leads into the way of, uh, of the tomb of Jesus there on the garden tomb in, in uh, Jerusalem, if you ever uh, take a tour of that. He is not here. He is risen. And then whatever groups are going through uh, Israel at that time are uh, free to come in and uh, become a first-hand witness to Jesus' resurrection as well. And uh, they said in form of a, a rebuke or a reminder, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, and uh, they didn't leave it solely to their remembrance, but 
told them what they should have remembered, saying, the Son of Man must be uh, delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise again uh, the third day, or uh, third day rise again, and then they remembered uh, Jesus' words. And so, ah, then the, the whole thing is starting to click uh, for them. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit just yet, and uh, that's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. And they then, uh, ha uh, women having been made uh, the first uh, uh, witnesses of Je human witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, they become uh, the first carriers of the news of Jesus' resurrection in, uh, in the church. And they returned from the tomb, and they told all of these things to the eleven and to all of the rest. And so the apostles are... Uh, hidden away somewhere in Jerusalem at, at that time, uh, most probably in the upper room that Jesus will appear to them uh, later in the evening of, of, that, uh, of, of His resurrection. And they report to them all of these things that uh, they had discovered. The tomb is empty. Jesus is raised from the dead, the angelic beings. And it was uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And uh, the men, uh, as they heard this report of Jesus' resurrection and the supernatural surrounding it, the words of the women seemed to them like uh, idle tales, and they simply uh, didn't believe them. So this is, uh, this is a step beyond the unbelief of the women. They come not expecting to find Jesus resurrected. Uh, here they get a, re a report of His resurrection, and they uh, simply refuse to believe it uh, on the basis of what they had seen in, in terms of uh, the punishment of Jesus, the violence of His death, and uh, the three days in between. Obviously, they had forgotten uh, the, the promises of Jesus to them, the declaration much less remembered what the Old Testament Scriptures said would be true of, of the Messiah. But Peter, he's, uh, he, there's something that kind of works on him a little bit. He hears this, and he arose and he ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by uh, themselves. And, uh, and he departed there, evidence of Jesus' resurrection, and marveling to himself at what had happened. And uh, the grave cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in, it wasn't like he uh, woke up and demummified himself and laid them in neat piles. Uh, what he was buried in had simply collapsed. His body had, uh, w was gone. And, and now Peter tries uh, to get his mind around uh, all of this that is, uh, has happened um, as well. I do want to take a moment here, since it is a, a Bible study, um, as we read this account concerning Jesus' resurrection, to uh, be reminded of why the resurrection is so important to Christianity. Um, there's a, a most liberal uh, pro, uh, denominations that claim to be Christian do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and you, you think to yourself as a Christian, or you know a little bit about the Bible, you think, how in the world can you play games with that? How can you attempt to improve upon uh, that Savior and improve upon Christianity as it's defined um, in the Scriptures? You're gutting it. You don't even know the damage that you're doing because you don't have uh, enough spiritual life uh, to realize uh, that. And so the resurrection is important to Christians, but it ought to be important to every thinking person who is looking for a victory over death and someone who can provide a, a victory over death. The resurrection of Jesus is important because it declares Him to be the Son of God, uh, just as Jesus declared Himself to be uh, the Son of God. And so uh, His resurrection verified it as true, uh, demonstrated it as true, His claim to be uh, uh, divine to be God in human flesh, uh, the Son of God and God the Son. Remember, during Jesus' public ministry, He continually claimed to be equal with the Father, uh, equal with God the Father. 
and he claimed that the Father would raise him from the dead after three days. If Jesus was wrong in any way in terms of his claim to, uh, to equality with the Father, then uh, the Father, and it wasn't true, the Father would have simply left him dead in that grave. And if his claim concerning his deity uh, was true, then the resurrection would be the Father's way of substantiating that claim. And so the Father uh, did. The Holy Spirit uh, puts this in a, in a, a powerful, uh, very succinct way in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, and, and the idea is Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God, divine, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead was heaven's verification upon his claims to be the Son of God and to be God the Son. The resurrection of Jesus is also important because it reveals him to be the promised Messiah. So the Old Testament scriptures had um, given by God concerning the Messiah that he would send into the world. It necess necessitated um, the uh, death of the Messiah, the burial of the Messiah, but also the resurrection of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, for example, clearly predicted the death uh, of, of the Messiah, where uh, Isaiah wrote by the Holy Spirit, he, that is Messiah, was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah says 740 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, that Messiah, when he comes into the world, he will die. He will be cut off from the land of the living, and, he, and it will happen for the transgressions of my people. He was smitten. And they made his grave, again emphasizing his death, with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had uh, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah goes on in that same chapter to say, Therefore, I will divide him a, por a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And yet, despite uh, these prophecies concerning the death of the Messiah, David writes by the Spirit of God in Psalm 16, uh, David declared through him that the Messiah would not remain in that condition, that dead condition, long enough to experience corruption. In other words, he would be resurrected. Psalm 16, verse 10, for you uh, will not leave my soul in Sheol, David said, uh, to uh, God the Father, and then he said concerning the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The resurrection of Jesus is important because it reveals that man can be justified uh, through simple faith in Jesus Christ. It is a, a, a verification of, of salvation on the basis uh, of faith. And to be justified before God means to have a just standing before God, to stand before Him in a uh, righteous condition where He looks at me, He looks at you, and He does not see our sin, uh, but He only sees uh, righteousness. He looks at us and He sees us as if we had never, ever uh, sinned. And of course, none of us has that righteous standing before God on our own we gain that kind of a righteous standing by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that pleases the Father. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus' righteousness is put to our account. So now when God the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin, but He sees Jesus' uh, perfect righteousness uh, put to our account. Again, famously, and we'll get to it on our Sunday morning series in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, uh, Paul wrote, For he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God uh, in him, and that is, <clears throat> in the Messiah. And so 
the resurrection put God's stamp of approval upon the fact that man is justified by simple faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And here again is how the Holy Spirit put it in writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 24. One moment, please. Paul wrote, It, that is righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The reason that's important is this, because during Jesus' public ministry, He had declared that He would provide the satisfying payment for our sins, and, uh, and, and as he declared to the disciples, for the Son of Man did not come into the, uh, into the world to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so then the hour of his crucifixion came, Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of sins, but how are we to know as finite Uh, uh, human beings, how are we to know that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God in order to provide us with this righteousness and this salvation? Uh, That what Jesus had said was true about salvation. And the answer is, as Paul put it in Romans, the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of the Son for the forgiveness of our sins. These are uh, wonderful, wonderful truths and, and, and speak to us of the importance of the resurrection, not only to the Christian life, but to our, our own relationship with God. Excuse me one moment. The resurrection of Jesus is important also because it reveals that our faith in Jesus Christ um, is not in vain. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen uh, asleep. The resurrection is important because it reveals to us Jesus' authority or His victory or power over death. It provides us with a victory uh, over death. Peter wrote in his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has uh, borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mankind needs a living hope. We need a a hope that has an answer for this enemy called death within our lives. And Jesus in His resurrection has provided uh, that living hope. And the reason that Jesus can provide uh, everlasting life to us is because He has uh, defeated death. And so Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death in, in His public ministry, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is important because it reveals his power over hell and his uh, uh, authority uh, over hell. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, And when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. Uh, But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last as he sees Jesus. Jesus declared further, I am the one who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And to have a key over a lock or over a door is to have authority over that door. And Jesus was speaking of his absolute authority uh, over these two great enemies of mankind, uh, death and uh, hell, and has made them, uh, given us authority over them as well. The resurrection is important because it it is a guarantee of our own future resurrection into heaven. 
Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. And so that resurrection of Jesus, the guarantee of our own uh, resurrection and the guarantee that we've not just been saved from hell, uh, uh, that our, our sins deserved, but that heaven is going to be our, our future eternal home as Christians. So you see, uh, to deny that the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, you take all of that out of Christianity and much, much more. I'm just kind of priming the pump here a little bit tonight. So the importance of the resurrection and why, important for us to know as Christians, why that resurrection uh, needed to occur. Why it wasn't enough for him just to die for our sins and then remain dead like uh, a mere human being uh, uh, would be. <clears throat> So, if any of you, <clears throat> any of the rest of you are dealing with allergies in a major way right now, I know you have compassion on me uh, presently. I don't know what's in the air, uh, probably coming from some foreign country uh, that um, hates Scots. Um, I don't know. And then, and then one of the most beautiful post-resurrection accounts of Jesus is his time speaking to the two disciples that are making their way to the village of Emmaus, beginning in verse 13. Now behold, two of them, that is two of Jesus' disciples, they were traveling on that same day, that is in the, the day of Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, and they're making their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. We know that they're going to arrive in Emmaus kind of in time for um, the evening meal because Clopas and the other disciple are going to offer Jesus that he would stay with them then for the evening meal and enjoy their hospitality. It's the springtime in the year, so the days aren't going to 9 o'clock just yet. So they're probably beginning their walk somewhere uh, 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, probably takes them two or three hours, certainly at the leisurely pace in which they're walking to cover this kind of space because this is a, a talking walk that they're involved in as they're trying to process the events of, of the previous days. And so they talk together of all these things which had happened. So they're making their way from Jerusalem. They're talking over Jesus' death upon the cross three days earlier, his burial, now the news by the women of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And again, they're trying to get their heads uh, all the way uh, around what it is that has happened. They're, they're confused by it. And it says when they're reasoned, they're trying to make some kind of, of sense of it. And so while they conversed and reasoned, in verse 15, uh, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And so evidently he draws up behind them. There would have been a lot of people on the roads because uh, the feast of Passover would have ended and you would have these Jewish pilgrims uh, some of them staying for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but others heading uh, for home. And so he comes up uh, probably behind them and be, uh, becomes a part of their uh, group. But their eyes were restrained supernaturally, so they, they weren't able to recognize him. And Jesus said to them, what kind of conversation is that, uh, this that you have with one another that you walk and are uh, sad? So... Now, they're so sad over the, uh, the events of the previous days, the, the, the death of Jesus, His crucifixion, and uh, the end of what uh, all of their hopes related to Jesus as Messiah. And I mean, they, they can't even hide it. They're wearing it on their exterior. And then one of those whose name was uh, Cleopas uh, answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known these things which happened there in these days? So it tells us 
how widespread the knowledge uh, at that particular Passover, how widespread the knowledge of Jesus' death upon the cross and everything that had happened surrounded that had filled the entire city uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem. It was the talk of uh, the Passover, and they couldn't understand how he could be traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus and not know the news that everybody had been talking about uh, for three days. And Jesus said to them, what things? And he desires to draw them out. And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, and then they begin to describe him, who was a prophet, uh, mighty indeed uh, and, uh, in word, uh, before God, and then uh, also before all of the people. And so speaking about his life and and uh, what he had done in his three and a half years of public ministry, and then how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And, and so all they know that has happened for sure that they believe is that Jesus died uh, 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 upon that cross. Uh, that, that here he was, his claims to be the Messiah, and yet now he's uh, dead. And, and, and such, so powerfully put in terms of their hope there in verse 21, as they say to Jesus, but we were hoping, uh, and the idea is we had hoped. Uh, their hope in the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, they speak of it now in the past tense. They can't put it together that somehow uh, he could be the Messiah and have died in the way that, that he had died or that he had died at all. And this is their lack of understanding of, of the Scriptures. And Jesus will take care of that in, in just a moment. So really something we were hoping, uh, but that's all been dashed, uh, that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. That is, that He was the Messiah. And indeed, beside all of this, today's the third day since these things uh, happened. This, all of this came down uh, three days ago. And yes, uh, and uh, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early this morning, uh, they uh, astonished us when they came to us and with the report that they did not find His body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who uh, said that Jesus was alive. And certain of those who were with us then went to the tomb, speaking of Peter and John, and they found it just as the women has said, had said, but him uh, they uh, did not uh, see. And so they lay all of this out to, um, to Jesus, and this is the cause for their, their sadness. Jesus asked the question, and they gave him uh, the explanation. Now, uh, pretend that you don't know the rest of the story. And uh, maybe some of us don't, but pretend, uh, those of you who do, that you don't know the rest of the story here, what it is that's going to happen. And you put yourself in Jesus' place here with these disciples. All of their hope, their faith has been completely dashed in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, you, uh, you can't have a greater crash and burn in your life than this crash and burn. Because you can mess with a person's life all around the periphery. You can deal with their health. You can deal with all kinds of things against them. But when you bring down uh, their belief in God and what they had held to in terms of believing about Jesus for the three and a half years of His public ministry, putting all of their hope, all of their confidence in that, and now the whole thing is blown up. And if we've been fools, if we've been deceived, and any time you rock the spiritual foundation in anyone's life, you're rocking them at their absolute core. And they've been rocked. They're in a very, very vulnerable place in terms of how they're viewing uh, Jesus here. And so you ask yourself, what in the world is Jesus going to do for them here? And uh, so is he going to say, listen, guys, you, got, you can't life get, let life get you down like that. Come on, 
group hug. Group hug. Say after me three times, I am a superhero. <laughs> or it's not the size of the uh, dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog and give you some maxims to say. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. And what he does to restore uh, their uh, endangered faith is absolutely fascinating. And what he does is he gives them a Bible study. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You can't trust who you don't know. And the, the greatest way to know God, the greatest revelation of God, is found in His Word. So he takes them now back to the Bible. And that's one of the great things that an advantage that a Christian has over anyone else is, is when uh, 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 somebody's spiritual world can be uh, rocked. Uh, all we need to do at a time like that is, is to view it as an opportunity to find out, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And then to learn that and have it become a part uh, of our lives. It simply means that we're ignorant of something that God has told us that now is the time for us to become well-versed in. And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, Jesus then gives them the Bible study, and he, he brings it forth in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. Now, that's a way to begin a sermon, isn't it? I just... I've 35 years at this, and I've never begun one. Good morning, O foolish ones and slow of heart. I say, boy, it's just getting started. What a way to offend. But Jesus is getting their attention. And the reason that they're, they're in the pickle that they're in is because they don't understand the Scriptures and what the Scriptures said about the Messiah and, and uh, that they, they should have known and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Your problem is, is that you don't recognize uh, and understand that everything that happened to this Jesus, this Messiah, they don't know that it's Him giving them this Bible study. The revelation that it's Him won't happen until this sermon is over. So they have no idea who is, uh, what kind of a rabbi is, is bringing this Bible study uh, forward to them. And, uh, and then he gives his propositional statement for his sermon, ought not the Christ to have suffered uh, these things and to enter into his glory? Now, every sermon has to have a propositional statement. And the propositional statement is very simply the point that the sermon is intended to make. And the point that the sermon is intended to make should be the point of the passage that's being studied. And so Jesus here, um, as he speaks of this and uh, declares, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, he lays out the propositional statement, and there is no greater way to gain the attention of an audience than to address a subject that they are currently uh, dealing with in their own life. And that, so he's got their attention 100% here in, in how he introduces it. And then we're told in beginning at Moses and all the prophets. So he goes back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are the law of Moses, and then all of the prophets, so major prophets, minor prophets in, in the Old Testament. And uh, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. So then he includes the poetic books of, uh, of Proverbs or, and, and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and so forth. And he began in those places, expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning uh, himself as the Messiah. And so he begins to lay all of these things out to them. Jesus had declared to the Jewish religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. Uh, but these are those that testify of me. You think God has given the Old Testament scriptures to give you a list of, of uh, doing things so you can earn your way into heaven. You've missed it completely. 
The entirety of the volume of the book, as the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, is written about Jesus and how salvation is going to be found uh, in the future from the Old Testament standpoint, us looking back, found by putting our faith in a Messiah, a Savior that God would send into the world. And so the, all of the Scriptures, Old Testament Scriptures, they speak to Christ as the Messiah. They speak to Jesus. And that's why no passage in, in the Old Testament is, is ever um, really uh, properly taught unless it is brought uh, back to Jesus, to His life, or to His teaching. It closes the loop because it's all about um, Him. And so he begins then to uh, share uh, with them uh, how all of those Old Testament passages, which were the only passages in the Bible uh, that they had, there was no New Testament, of course, at that time, and he begins uh, to speak to them. And perhaps he began uh, in the Law of Moses in Genesis chapter 3, where God had declared, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall uh, bruise uh, his heel. And that is the Father speaking uh, to the devil and how God had promised at the very beginning that he would send a savior into the world who would be born of a woman that is a virgin birth. Satan would bruise the heel of the Messiah, that is what happened on the cross, but that ultimately the Messiah would crush Satan's power. And then maybe, and without a doubt, Jesus then uh, quoted David, the great psalmist of Israel in Psalm 22 concerning Messiah. They gape at me with their mouth as a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my uh, garments among them and ask for, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so Jesus is in essence saying to them, why has the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of Jesus, surprised you? Since God declared it would happen a thousand years before it happened uh, through David in the writing of, of uh, Psalm 22. And then, uh, as we've already quoted uh, perhaps uh, to David again in uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, For you, David said to, to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. You won't leave me in hell. Then he goes on to speak about the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so David had declared that the Messiah would die, that he would be buried, but he would not remain in that condition long enough for his body uh, to rot. And then surely Jesus uh, went to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, that is the Messiah, his face, uh, was marred more than any man, and his form, that is his body, more than the sins of man. And, and so Jesus saying, why has the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of Jesus, become a stumbling block to you rather than a cause for faith in him uh, as your Messiah in the light of the teaching of, of the law and the prophets? And then perhaps to uh, uh, Isaiah again in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And what, uh, what these people did not know from their own Bible and their own understanding of the Messiah is remarkable. And, uh, but it was the way that it was going in those days where the Jewish religious leaders, as they looked at the Old Testament Scriptures, they saw two portraits of Messiah. 
They say, saw Messiah, uh, the portrait of him as a conquering king on one hand. Then they saw a suffering savior on the other hand. Which one are you going to emphasize, uh, you know, to uh, build a big church? or to, you know, keep people pumped up or whatever. And so they completely neglected the Scriptures that spoke about the suffering of Messiah and only emphasized the conquering king aspect of the Messiah and left the nation completely unprepared to properly process Jesus' death upon the cross and His burial. But it was all right there. Again in Isaiah 53, uh, Jesus surely went to it, and he that is Messiah was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes uh, we are healed. And so how can his uh, wounding, this terribly bruised body, all of his stripes, how can this be a cause for doubting in your life in, in light uh, of the fact that Isaiah prophesied it would happen 740 years before it did happen. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And uh, not through Isaiah alone, but didn't God declare the same thing through Daniel the prophet? Daniel chapter 9. Know therefore, as God spoke to Daniel, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And Daniel declares that the Messiah, when he comes, he is going to uh, die. And on and on and on he could have continued. And I have no doubt uh, that he did. I mean, that's quite a three-hour sermon, or, or however long it took them uh, to, to finish that walk. And there can't be any doubt at all that Jesus also <clears throat> went and spoke of Abraham's willingness to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Take your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. All is a picture of the Father, God the Father, giving his son, the son that he loved for, as a sacrifice for our sins. We think about the Lord's institution of the Feast of Passover in the Old Testament among the Jews at the time of Moses, where the sacrifice would be made. It had to be a lamb without spot and without blemish. The blood then needed to be applied to the doorpost and the lentil of the house in the, 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 the shape of a cross, and on and on and on, the imagery of all of that, speaking of the coming uh, of Messiah. Every single Old Testament sacrifice and offering spoke of Jesus. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, all of it spoke and speaks of Him to this day. Every inch of the tabernacle as it was given to Moses. Every bit of the, the, uh, the, the fabrics that made it up, the blankets that made it up, the curtains that made it up, the number of rods that were involved in, in, uh, in constructing it and taking it down and putting it back uh, up again. Uh, all of it spoke uh, of, of Jesus and spoke of the Messiah uh, to come. Every furnishing of the tabernacle spoke of, uh, of, of Him. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of the showbread, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the Day of Atonement spoke of Him, where on that holiest day in the Jewish calendar, they would take then the two, uh, uh, the two animals to sacrifice, and the one would be sacrificed for the sins of the people, but the other would be released in, into the wilderness to, uh, to head off free. And what it spoke of is the imagery of what the salvation that Messiah would bring into the world, that He would uh, 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 die for our sins, and then He would separate our sins uh, from, uh, from us. 
And then there was the offering of the leper and the day of his cleansing, the brazen serpent of Moses' time, the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are vertical, having to do with man's relationship with God. The final six are horizontal, having to do with man's relationship with his fellow man. And both of them together, they come in the shape of a cross. And if you think I'm making too much uh, uh, of that, and the intended imagery of it, uh, allow me to quote uh, Jesus related to it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Teacher, as he was asked, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, encapsulating the first four of the Ten Commandments, the, the vertical uh, uh, commandments. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, encapsulating the six commandments of, uh, of the Ten Commandments having to do with our relationship with our fellow man. And then Jesus, in, in such amazing uh, language, said, on these two commandments hang, hang all of the law and the prophets. And Jesus would hang upon uh, that cross in order to provide us with a right relationship with God, but then also a right relationship with our fellow man. And, and just masterfully and beautifully and flawlessly, Jesus drives home his point, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And, and, he, and you could easily fill three hours in talking about this very subject. And sometimes you have uh, Christians uh, will sometimes say, you know, I don't read the Old Testament. I only read the New Testament because the New Testament is about Jesus. And they have no idea the, the volume of the book testifies of him. And we could never have the appreciation that we have of Jesus as new covenant people as Christians if we did not understand its roots and its foundations in the Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons that on the Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, because it's all about Him, and, and it's all required for us to appreciate our, our Savior as, as fully as He ought to be uh, appreciated. And so when somebody says, Listen, I don't read the Old Testament. I only read the New Testament because I want to learn about Jesus. Don't tell Jesus that. He doesn't know anything about that because he spoke uh, 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 of himself just within the narrow realm of his death, burial, and resurrection from the context of, of the Old Testament to say nothing of, of, of everything else. And so his rebuke of them in in verse 25, of being foolish ones and, and slow of, uh, of, of heart. It's a, it's a strong way to begin a, a sermon. He rebuked their unbelief. And you notice the, the fascinating thing. He, he didn't rebuke their unbelief of the witness of the angel or the witness of the women or even the witness of the empty tomb. He rebuked their unbelief in the face of the Old Testament Scriptures. Because if they had known those Scriptures, then everything that was stumbling them in their faith would have not only not stumbled them, but would have become an even greater cause for believing in Him as the Messiah. They would have not been walking sad from Jerusalem uh, to, uh, to Emmaus, but rejoicing and a, a beautiful, beautiful picture of the power uh, of, of the Word of God in, in that way must have really, really been something to listen to that sermon. And then they drew near to the village where they were going, Emmaus, and Jesus indicated that he would have gone on further, but they constrained him. They wanted to, to continue with him. They don't know it's Messiah, but when somebody knows the Bible this way, uh, you, want to, you want to have dinner with them too. You want to keep them around as long as you can. And they said, abide with us. For today, uh, it, it is toward evening now, and the day, is, um, the day is far spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them, 
and he accepted their invitation. And it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, and uh, apparently bread is, is given as a part of the meal there, that he took the bread and uh, he uh, blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they realized that it was Jesus that they had been talking to all along. And then he vanished uh, from their sight. And then they said to one another, imagine processing this now with one another, really something. Uh, and they said to one another, did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us uh, on the road? Their faith has been completely renewed. Should have never, ever, uh, they should have never been stumbled. But if there is the stumbling now, uh, the Word of God has done its, its work. And that is uh, re renewing their faith in Jesus, not based upon emotion, not based upon the reports of others, but based upon the witness of the surest thing in the world, and that is uh, the Bible itself, the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures to Jesus as uh, uh, Messiah. And so did our heart not burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened up uh, the Scriptures to us. And so they couldn't keep this to themselves. They've made the seven-mile journey. The day is at the end, but uh, they headed back to Jerusalem. They rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were uh, with them uh, gathered together in that, that upper room in Jerusalem, and they came uh, together, and the, what was reported to them as they joined them is, the Lord has risen uh, indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they proceeded to tell the things that had happened on the road and how he was made uh, known uh, to them and uh, in the uh, breaking of bread. Now, as they were saying these things, Jesus stood um, in the midst of them. So, and it isn't the kind of thing that when Jesus appears to them that on the night of the resurrection, it isn't that they're all sitting in the room and then all of a sudden they hear the door creak. And then they can't see anybody come in, and then the door closes. And all freaked out that way. He doesn't come in, through, in any way like that. He just simply appears um, in, in the room uh, 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 with, with nothing changing uh, related to what it is that uh, has been uh, in terms of opening doors or unsecuring the room or resecuring the room or any of, of these kind of, of things. And so he said to them, you guys are the biggest bunch of knuckleheads. If I'd have known what I had gotten, I can't believe I spent a night in prayer with the Father up in the Galilee and ended up with you twelve, hiding up here and wondering whether I'm resurrected or anything. No, he's, he doesn't say that. He doesn't even tell us that entered into his mind at all. What does he say to them? He says, peace to you. Shalom. I tell you, I am so thankful for the, for the Lord, how patient He is with us. I mean, how many times He could, he could read me the riot act, and He, and he doesn't uh, do it. He makes sure that I learn the lesson, but He never sticks my nose in my mess. He never does that, and He's marvelous that way. He simply declares peace to them because they were terrified in that upper room. Now they become terrified on the basis of his appearance with them. They're terrified and, and frightened, no longer the religious leaders, but now uh, of this supernatural event, and they suppose that they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet with the holes still in them, in, in, in order that you know that it's I myself. Handle me and, and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so he invites them to touch his, his hands and his body to, to confirm his bodily resurrection from the, the dead that it's him. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, um, but they still not, did not believe that he had risen from the dead. Not in the sense of we don't believe it, but 
we can't believe this is so good that we can't believe it's true. The emotion is completely swung. They They still did not believe for joy. They marveled, and so he said to them, have you any food? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And the whole idea was to confirm his body, uh, bodily resurrection, as he ate and partook of, of this food. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a spirit. Uh, he was uh, physically uh, raised from the dead. Now, as he comes into that room, and one minute he's invisible, the next minute he's visible, just miraculously like that. After his resurrection, his body... Um, maintained the same structure, it maintained the same appearance as before, but now in some essential way um, it, 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 it has uh, changed. And now it's a supernaturalized body and that's uh, made for both heaven and for, uh, for earth. So he comes out of his grave cloths without unwrapping them. He exits the tomb without rolling away the stone. He did not roll away the stone. The angels rolled away the stone, not so Jesus could get out, but so that the women could be a witness to uh, the the resurrection. And here he enters in the room without passing through a door. He could appear and disappear at will. You say, what does this have to do with with us? It's interesting, but what does it have to do with us? It has plenty to, to do with us and fascinating in the sense that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Uh, John writes to us and says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be in terms of our new body once we uh, die and and, uh, uh, receive a a body that's made uh, for heaven. But he said, But we know that when He, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he spoke about this same event uh, and, and the, what, what will happen to us, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. And so, um, Paul, when he, when he wrote for 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection, he, he talked about there's, there's bodies for the earth and there's bodies for heaven. They're entirely different things. We can't understand exactly what it will be, but uh, even these glimpses at it, what it will be are uh, marvelous. And, uh, and, and so we see the, the beauty of him and his patience with them. And then he told them, as he gives them in, in Luke's uh, account concerning the Great Commission, he said these words, uh, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were spoken in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning uh, me. And so he, in a very abbreviated form here of a sentence or two, he informs all of the disciples up in that upper room uh, that uh, what he had taken three hours to speak to the two on the road to Emmaus that all of this spoke concerning me. Again, this, the, the, uh, what happened to me should be an encouragement of your faith in me as Messiah, not a stumbling block. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then all of a sudden, it all starts to come together. I think about the Apostle Paul in, in this regard. He, he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is a disciple of Gamaliel, the famous, most famous rabbi in Jerusalem at that time. He's been indoctrinated in the Scriptures in exactly the wrong, polar opposite wrong way for what they actually say. He's looking at it as a means of self-righteousness. As I mentioned before, keep these laws and you can make yourself good enough for heaven. And then all of a sudden, with his interaction with Jesus and uh, and he gets knocked off his high horse on 
uh, the road to Damascus, and he has that interaction with Jesus. And then imagine with the depth of his knowledge of the Scriptures as this kind of Rubik's Cube. He's, all of these things got to move completely different in his life and shift for him to see it in a completely different way, the way that it was intended to see. And I just think about being in his brain for five minutes while all of that is unfolding and how fast all of that is moving as he realizes, oh, this meant this. The Day of Atonement meant this. The sin offering meant this. And all of it is exploding to life uh, uh, for, uh, for him. And so here they have this revelation comes upon them as well. And he said to them, thus it is written... Uh, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then in terms of the Great Commission, don't keep this to yourself, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in Jesus' name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Don't keep this message of, of salvation to yourself Take it out into the entire world. It would be wonderful for us just to sit here right now and say, Lord, as we head out into the world in this coming week, would you give us one person in which you make it abundantly clear that we are to share the gospel with them, this good news of Jesus dying on the cross for their sins, uh, rising again in order to provide them uh, with salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. And then uh, 40 days later, his ascension, behold, I send uh, the promise of my Father uh, upon you, and, uh, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So don't go anywhere. Don't start preaching the gospel until you receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the record of that is then in Acts chapter 1. Remember Luke, uh, used by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so it's a continuation of the story. And so here he, he talks about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. So when you turn to the book of, uh, of Acts and you begin, you're just going right in line with them, with them waiting for that baptism of the Holy Spirit to begin their public ministry as well. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and uh, he blessed them before uh, he ascended into heaven. And it came to pass while he blessed them uh, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And it's interesting to notice that he was carried up into heaven. He didn't take himself into heaven. He was carried up into heaven. And this is the Father's endorsement upon the entirety of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus is uh, the Father's amen to the life and the teaching of Jesus. And the ascension is also the Father's amen to the life and, uh, and the teaching of Jesus. And so uh, Jesus is carried up into heaven, and the idea is that no matter what the world, in any generation, uh, in human history, whatever they may think of Jesus Christ and the gift that God has given mankind in Him, whatever they or we may think of Him, He is highly esteemed in heaven and his uh, ascension back into heaven, into the glory that he left in order to provide us with salvation was eagerly anticipated by heaven. I, it, 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 is a, it, it does something wonderful in my heart and, uh, to, to just consider that and to not just be encumbered by the low view that our culture, and increasingly ever more the low view that it has of Christianity and of the Christ who has brought Christianity into human history, but to remember that no matter what people think in this world, and who cares what people think in this world, what a nutty place this is, uh, but how highly he is esteemed uh, in heaven. And if you're going to force me to choose between 
uh, heaven or earth in terms of the esteem of Jesus. That's an easy choice for me. And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem uh, with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and, bless, and blessing God um, uh, for those 40 days as they then awaited the uh, day, of, uh, uh, day of Pentecost and that coming with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we'll stop there um, uh, tonight. And I went three minutes over, so you can have um, extra M&Ms <laughs> on your ice cream tonight. Before I forget, by the way, after the service, there is ice cream uh, social out in the fellowship, uh, out in the courtyard, the kids, everything. Um, it'll be a blast. So let's stand together now and let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for our Savior. Thank you that you sent him. Jesus, thank you that you came. We are so humbled by it. And Father, we are thankful for a Savior that as we look at Him and as you reveal Him in your Scriptures, that He is a perfect match for every need in our massively fallen lives. And we thank you tonight, individually, we thank you as a church for what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and what this gospel has meant to us and brought into our lives and the quality of life in this life that is ours to say nothing of the hope that is to come. Thank you again, Father, for sending your Son to save us. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.